The population is just under 20,000 people. There's 8,400 houses in Ellensburg total. Of those houses, we know that 5,000 of them are renter occupied. Today, we manage about 555 of those units, which is almost 11% market share. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Laidler, managing broker at Accolade Property Management based in Ellensburg, Washington. Prior to working in single family, Sarah's background was in the multifamily side, where she managed over 1,000 apartment units. Currently, Accolade manages over 450 single family units, as well as some multifamily and HOA in a city of fewer than 30,000 people. In today's episode, you'll learn how Sarah's experience with multifamily properties has translated into success on the single family side and how you can have an outsized presence in a very small market. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Let's start here. Background. I mentioned that you had a background in multifamily. Put some color in that. How do you get into the multifamily side? Definitely. So I grew up in a family where my parents were developers. And so as their portfolio grew and they started building larger projects, the banks and everyone else kind of started telling them, you know, you really need to start hiring a professional property management company. And so with that, they did. Um, We actually went through three big name professional property management companies, one REIT, and um, really just had a horrible experience with each one. And in that decided, nope, we're taking it back in house. We're going to manage our own stuff um, and started there. So I just really started managing my parents' properties. Their smallest property was 100 units. Um, their largest was about 250. So we had full site teams and the whole nine yards. So really, we're just taking care of our own stuff and then inadvertently built a property management company by accident. By accident. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh... Common story, right? In terms of how people get into it. Apparently, there's not a a lot of five-year-olds right now. They're telling themselves, I can't wait to grow up and be a property manager. So you do multifamily for a while. How'd you like it? What were your thoughts? What were some of the highs and lows on the multifamily side? I loved multifamily. All of our properties were class A properties. So I just love the challenge. I love the numbers. I love the people. Um, Every day was different and you can't beat that. I think it's a great thing to go to work and not know really what's going to happen for the day. And um, it just was a good fit for me. And I thought it was exciting. So then why the transition eventually away from multifamily? So as our assets and portfolio grew, we really started getting recognized in the industry as an expert. So we started winning some local awards, then some statewide awards, and then we won a national award and kind of thought, man, like we're this little family operated company and we're getting recognized, I guess. We were also in a position where we were considering selling about 250 units. And we'd never considered selling selling before. So we never really had an exit strategy. But if we were going to sell those units, 
it was going to impact us on multiple levels. We'd have the cash flow from the property that we would no longer have. We'd have the cash flow from the property management. And then my salary was also being paid by the property, which is customary and multifamily. And so I started thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to sell my job. And this is a real bummer. So I thought, I'll just go out and get a few more accounts. Seems easy enough. And I don't want anything under 100 units. So I just started cold calling. And I was 27 years old then. And just started cold calling and meeting investors. And now I think of them as the big boys. But at the time, I just thought it was no big deal. I was going to go swoop myself up a few accounts. Didn't quite go as planned. So um, got two accounts. And then right then was in 2008. So the market kind of fell out. Both accounts after securing them fell apart for financing on one and another deal kind of went sideways. And so I decided we needed to maybe try diversifying and doing some single family property management. All right. So diversification is definitely something that that comes up in terms of those deals falling through. And I guess really just the market conditions overall. How were you feeling in, in 08? How did that impact you? Did that make you more or less optimistic about the viability of the business overall? There was obviously a lot of chaos going on at that time. There's definitely a lot of chaos. So at the beginning, I felt really optimistic, like this is a great opportunity. I'll go get a few good accounts. And then after about six or nine months, I just felt defeated. And honestly, I just felt like I needed an easy win. So that's kind of why I decided, you know what, I can go get a single family house and secure a contract and feel good about myself. And know I can provide a really good service to that person. Um, But it was really interesting, just the family dynamic, because my parents were like, what in the world are you thinking? Like, how are you going to make any money with a single house? That's going to be really hard. Did that sale go through the sale? I think it was 250 units you mentioned. You know, many years later that ended up going through. It actually ended up not having any bearing on the immediate need to diversify, but it definitely started that ball rolling to considering what might be if we were to sell an asset. Got it. So you wanted some diversification. So you're focusing on single family. Beyond that, was there a vision? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to grow it to? Like how much forethought was there in terms of where you thought you could take it? Yeah, definitely. So I definitely knew there was a market. I got a few single family properties and I was living in the Puget Sound area at the time and quickly realized I hated single family. It was horrible. The traffic was awful. You'd drive to a property, the tenant or applicant wouldn't show up. The deal would fall apart. I felt like I wasted my whole day. And so I just decided, you know, I I hate that. I don't like that. But I still knew that there was a way that we could create a viable business. I just needed to reposition myself. We had a property that we owned 100 units in Ellensburg, Washington, which is central Washington. It's where Central Washington University is located. So it's a little college town. And um, I'd managed that since 98. So I was very familiar with that market. It's a small town. I started thinking about traffic and there's no traffic where I live, which is awesome. So I thought, well, I can get all the way across town in less than 10 minutes. And that's even if I go way out in the country. And um, I think I should start a business there. But my biggest problem was I was living two and a half hours away. So I needed to figure out how I could start a business in a town that I didn't live in. But our ultimate goal was to be able to move to the east side of the mountains of Washington where the sun shines and it doesn't rain. So then was this a situation where you had to to cut the cord or like how long were you able to, to do both to do it remotely? How did you juggle that? Nope. I ended up 
reaching out to a local realtor in Ellensburg and just said, Hey, I am starting this business here. I'm going to do property management. My biggest hurdle right now is that when I get, I can get an account, that's no problem. But when someone wants to see a property, they want to see it right away and they can't wait a day or a couple hours for me to drive there to get it secured. Can I just pay you a flat fee to show the house and rent it? And that's all I need. And so she was like, well, that's kind of interesting. I just kind of started out. I just had someone ask me if I manage a few of their doors. So I'm kind of looking into this too. So it really was a divine appointment where we started talking. And I said, you know, why don't you just come on board with Accolade? We've got all of our systems set up. We've got our processes set up. You know, it'd be a win-win situation for both of us. Let's team up and um, build something great. And she took the plunge. And it worked. And it worked. Even better. (laughs) Best decision she ever made. That's what I tell her. I think she thinks so too. What was she doing? Was she doing the whole thing? Everything from uh, BDM to, to managing? How, how did you get the initial list of accounts? How did all that work? Yep. So she had about 10 doors that she brought on when she joined. And then um, we have the apartments that we own there in town. So we turned one of the apartments into an office for a temporary office space. And then we just kind of started uh, word of mouth saying, you know, we're doing property management. Uh, we have about three other competitors in town, but it's definitely pretty old school the way they're operating their businesses. So we just kind of started showing up and answering the phone and returning phone calls. And within about six months, we realized we really needed a downtown presence and um, ended up leasing an office space downtown Ellensburg. So we were on the main, you know, Ellensburg's pretty exciting. There's four main streets downtown. So we're right in the middle on one of them. You know, that's just really the snowball started. And in terms of the remote relationship, how often were you getting down to Ellensburg before you made the commitment to fully move? I was going down uh, two to three times a week. So very regularly. And how long did you have that arrangement before you ended up moving there? Oh, I bet two years. Actually, maybe one year. One year. It was a while. Love it. So what I like about this piece of the story is the notion of a constraint. The constraint was you didn't live there. So for example, micromanaging is just harder to do. There are certain things that you did as a result of the constraint of not having a physical presence there. I think about that with expansion markets when people are thinking about moving to a new market. I know a number of folks that run companies and they don't live in the same city as that company. And that ends up being one of the best things that could happen because it requires them to engage, to let go more and to act more in that true management capacity as opposed to being constantly tempted to get back down into the weeds. Definitely focuses you on your processes. Mm-hmm. So then how did things kind of scale from there? You're adding doors slowly over time. What were the roles that you added and in what order? So we opened up that office at the end of 2010. And it just was myself, um, Anne, and then she actually had a gentleman who was she was sharing an office space with. And so he came on too. So it was the three of us that were all kind of operating it. And we did everything. So we did business development. We took tenant phone calls. We prepped leases. We dispatched maintenance. We did the moving report. We did the move out report. You name it. We did the whole thing. Then as we grew, we have always led with profit. We worked hard to be able to make sure that we had enough revenue coming in before we started hiring additional support staff. And then our first support staff we brought on uh, just like 16 to 20 hours a week, a college girl whose dad actually happened to be an investor and we were managing his property. And so she was going to college in Ellensburg there and pretty cool. She's with us today and one of our key players. Awesome. So 
progressively growing over time. And we kind of glossed over this in the intro, but if I'm listening to this, the thing that I'm really tuned in on is your percentage of market share. So your door count relative to the size of the market that you're in. So could you just kind of walk us through the stats on how big is the city? We did some work ahead of time. You did some work related to the demographics of rental units, et cetera. Kind of walk me through where you guys are at from a market share perspective. Definitely. So Ellensburg is, like I mentioned, a college town. The population is just under 20,000 people. So we're a small little town. There's 8,400 houses in Ellensburg total. So there's not a ton of houses. Of those houses, we know that 5,000 of them are renter occupied. And so when we say houses, that includes multifamily and single family, correct? Correct. And then, you know, 5,000 of those are renter occupied. And today we manage about 555 of those units, which is almost 11% market share. Which is crazy. Absolutely bananas to have that kind of a market share. And who would think that that kind of growth would be viable in that kind of a market? It's definitely a little counterintuitive. I know a couple of other customers that are in markets like that. When you moved there, you mentioned that that lifestyle was part of the motivation. Did you think that you were going to be able to get that much traction in a market that's that small? I definitely feel like I get traction. Like I said, when I first started, I didn't realize how profitable single family management could be. So I kind of thought, okay, this will just be like a little supplement and make me feel good until I get another big account. But this turned into a pretty big account. That kind of market share, I mean, walk me through the mechanics of how you think about that. Do you think, is that a small city, word of mouth, everybody knows each other sort of thing? I mean, how you how would you break down being able to get that kind of market penetration? 100%. So I really think it's uh, two factors. So first of all, not very many people in small towns come out as professionals. And what I mean by that, we were already branded. We knew our mark. We knew what we looked like. Our signs looked good. Our We had a, a company vehicle. It looks good. We returned phone calls. So we looked big. It was kind of a catch-22 because sometimes people would be like, oh, are you a franchise? Are you guys... Corporate. Corporate. Like they didn't want corporate because it's a small town. It played to our advantage because we looked good and we were professional. And we had good marketing materials. But then also we had to explain like, no, like we're locally owned. We're, you know, excited to be here and serving you. It just, it just us. But then definitely word of mouth is just huge. Um, our town's super small and everyone knows everyone. And so it's not abnormal for us to walk in from our office to the coffee shop, past two clients and three tenants and someone who is inquiring for a friend about us. So. Mm-hmm. Love that. So how would you describe the branding or positioning of Accolade from a consumer perspective relative to some of the other companies in your market? Definitely we're by far the most professional. Like I said, you know, we have a presence. It's clean. It looks good. And uh, we deliver on what we say we're going to deliver on. Got it. So you're trying to avoid the mom and pop feel of Smith management where... You know, it's it's Joe Smith. And if Joe Smith isn't feeling well that day, then you ain't getting any service. We definitely avoid that, but we walk a really fine line. So if you come into my office, we're not suited up. That would just not fly in our town at all. So we're still jeans and, you know, professional looking shirt put together, but we're not. If for some reason I wear slacks or something to work, people think I'm heading to a funeral or something for the day. So in terms of scaling the company and growing 
over time. That's a again a crazy level of market share in a pretty small town. Are there adjacent markets nearby? I mean, when you think about the growth potential, do you think that it's possible to push much higher than that eleven percent figure? How far do you think that number could get pushed? I definitely think in the Ellensburg market, we can double our figures in the next five years if we really start working towards getting new clients. Right now, it's been so organic. We just take them as they come. And we've also done lots of times where we've stopped and said, okay, we need to regroup and make sure that as we onboard people, we're continuing to provide the service that we are proud of. Um, But then Yakima is an adjoining uh, city. It's about 40 minutes away. That's actually where I live. For the last two years, I've been watching that market, targeting that market. We've got about 25 rentals. Actually, maybe more than that, maybe about 40 rentals now in Yakima that we manage. It's mainly just figuring out how to run another office and recreating the, I guess, McDonald's stamp that we already figured out in Ellensburg and stamping it down now in Yakima. I love that you already have a repeatable playbook in that regard in terms of expanding to a market with no physical presence right out of the gate. In terms of what you got from your background in multifamily, what leverage and cross-application has there been there? What do you think that you do currently that you value in managing the single-family business that you wouldn't do if you didn't have that multifamily background? Probably the biggest thing is just understanding numbers. So multifamily for decades has been figuring out ways to create revenue and other income streams. The single family market's just now starting to figure that out. And I mean, more and more people are doing it, but we started that from the beginning, which definitely put us at an advantage. I think the other thing too, is just, you know, being able to communicate to our owners because a lot of our owners are accidental landlords. So they're stressed out. They don't really know what they're doing. So just being able to talk to them and walk them through, like, do you understand if you don't hire me and you let your property sit vacant for a month, how much per day you're losing in vacancy loss? Well, they're not thinking that. They're thinking, oh my goodness, can I afford a management company? Mm-hmm. So being able to walk them through the numbers, they're the same numbers, whether it's 100 units or one unit, but it just, you know, being able to communicate all those little numbers that end up making a really big difference to your bottom line at the end of the year. Treating it like an asset. Treating it like an asset. So you've obviously moved in some other areas. You manage 100 multifamily doors, some HOA as well. How do you think about the other property types? Obviously, we can kind of gloss over multifamily. I think it's pretty clear what you think about that. But with HOA specifically, was that opportunism? Was that strategic? How do you think about that unit type? HOA was definitely opportunity-based, but um, we had a good background. We had built and owned 150 apartments and then built 100 condos right next door in 2006. And then the market crashed. So with that experience, we were managing the apartments, managing the condos, managing the listing, and then also managing the HOA. Homeowners are not very happy when they buy at the top of the market and then the market crashes. So really navigating that, uh, that association back in 2006, um, I managed it, I think till 2012 or 15 ish. It was just so valuable the inform- what I learned through that. And at the time I thought, Oh, I never want to do an HOA again because they're hard and there's lots of personalities and you can't ever make anyone happy. But you know, the opportunity just kept presenting itself. And I really thought, okay, I need to, you know, rethink this and I won't have the personal emotional attachment to it. The experience we gained there definitely provides a totally different opportunity. Um, so with that portion of our business, I really started reaching out to developers. So uh, we're close to Suncadia 
in the Clay Elm area, which is a second dairy housing community about an hour from Seattle. So a lot of the big money people buy a second or third home over there. And those are all HOAs. So I started reaching out to the developers and saying, hey, you know, you're running an HOA, but you're a developer and developers don't know how to run HOAs. But there's a lot of work that goes into setting one up properly from the beginning. That's been profitable and good. And that's kind of how we've built our HOA division is helping the developers through it and then earning their trust as a client. This big fish, small pond strategy, could you see somebody leveraging any of this in a larger market, possibly by uh, picking a more specific niche? Or do you think that it's something that is somewhat unique to the geography that you're in and that it could be most easily exploited in a geographically smaller market? You know, I've only done it really in a smaller market. So to me, it just worked and was easy. I haven't been in a big city where you have, you know, 15 other management companies that actually provide a good service and you really have to compete and it's more of a dog eat dog world. So um, I, I, don't, I honestly don't know how to answer that. Oh, that's, that's wisdom. <laughs> when you don't know, you don't know. When I think about that dog eat dog complaint, when I think about like here, just let's walk through some examples. One, all property management getting that all property management lead. And as soon as you get it, it got sent to five other people and you're scrapping to get that person on the phone and they want to be down on price. There is certainly a lot of angst regarding the competitive nature of being in the industry. The more competitors in your market, potentially the more competitive it's going to be. Your brand positioning though is obviously a meaningful point of differentiation. So in any market, whether it be large or small, the choice that you make in terms of the mind share that you're trying to occupy, whether that be choosing to be a low-cost vendor, you're naturally going to have a higher percentage of your sales conversation be centered around price. Whereas if your positioning is around service, if it's around that fiduciary, high-authority role, then you're going to be haggling and talking about a different subset of issues. So maybe that's kind of the parallel to some degree. One of the things that I'm curious about is, in your market where you're developing these relationships over how many years has it been now? Eight. Eight years. So it's not like you grew up there, right? I mean, there is still, you definitely had to, had to work your way and claw it through. Have you been able to see more biz dev opportunities that have come from a result of having these relationships? And I don't necessarily just mean referring new business, but in terms of like in my career, the more velocity and traction that I've got, the more opportunities I've seen to monetize, basically to create new business units and opportunities kind of on the fly that only come through having a sufficient level of like brand velocity, relationship, et cetera. Are you thinking about any other ancillary business opportunities or do you think it's more about expanding the existing lines of business that you already have? What do you, how are you more inclined to go, horizontal or vertical? Oh, uh. I don't know horizontal or vertical, but there's definitely opportunities, you know, as you get more established in your market and as people recognize you as the industry expert, the opportunities that are presented to you literally daily are amazing. So now it becomes more of, okay, which opportunity am I going to take and what makes most sense financially? And then also most sense just from what we want to create as a business. Um, And then, you know, jumping back a little bit to what you were saying previously is like when you're competing, I think just being true to like being true to who you are. What are you good at? What do you like to do? All that. So when these opportunities are coming in, it might even be a really financially beneficial opportunity. But if it's not something that's going to drive you and motivate you and get you excited to wake up every day, please pass. 
because the money is only good for so long and then it's no fun. Definitely um, seeing lots of those opportunities and then also just kind of being in that small town. It's been really shocking to me to see how people have been watching us and I'm not realizing that we're being watched. So uh, we had a gentleman who has a very well-established commercial business that he's had for decades and started coming to visit our office a couple years ago and just coming, saying hi, seeing what's going on, and then kind of started dropping, you know, someday I'm going to retire and I need someone to take my business over. And I kind of thought he was blowing smoke or, you know, just calls us kids. And I like that. It's great. And sure as heck, he's done retired and we're taking over his whole business for him. And Um, You know, that's not something I didn't go knock on his door and ask for that. He watched us and then started coming in to see if it was real and found out there's no one else he'd rather partner with as he starts his retirement journey. Love it. So that's a perfect example. Opportunity that comes just kind of organically by staying in your lane. But when the right opportunity comes, you're able to pluck it out of the air. I love that. So let's talk a little bit more about the lifestyle side of things. You mentioned that Ellensburg was just a great place to live. Haven't been there, but I've driven through the Yakima Valley, lived in Portland for a couple of years. The furthest north I've been is Winthrop. Do you know where Winthrop, Washington is? Yeah. Yeah. So I went went out there once actually to visit the all property management offices, uh, oddly enough. But, you know, nice area for whatever reason, good, good schools, whatever, for whatever reason, that's where you wanted to be. What are the other kind of goals that you have for the business as it relates to lifestyle? What does an ideal situation look like for you? And how do you, what do you do to, to not get thrown off that ideal? As far as lifestyle goes, I guess what's really important to me is I want to create a business that has just a synergy and excitement that people are wanting to come to work every day. And with that, with them wanting to be there, they're creating additional roles and positions for themselves to be able to grow into. Mm -hmm. And so if I can continue to build a business where everyone in the company can continue to rise up and fulfill their own career goals, there's nothing better than seeing everyone flourish. And if everyone's that committed and that focused and that excited about being a part of something and knowing that they can get skin in the game and they can, you know, learn more, earn more and have more fun. That just is what we're looking to do. So you want to come to work in an exciting environment where there's like real energy flowing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I want to just continue to create that and be a part of like letting people be all that they can be, I guess. So do you feel that growth is required? I mean, that tends to be the general premise, right? For people to be able to move up the ladder, the ladder has to have like more than than three pegs, right? It's got to like progressively kind of expand over time. Right. You feel some burden then to continue to grow the business. You're not looking to cap it out where you're at right now. I'm definitely not looking to cap it out right now. There's just too many opportunities and exciting things. I lay in bed at night and wonder what I missed out on. <laughs> and there's no right or wrong answer here, right? I mean, this is the this is the beauty of the industry. Some folks get to 500 doors and they realize that they do not want to go through what is required to get to 1,000 doors. There's no judgment in that. Recurring revenue is a beautiful thing. The, the business is... Two of the businesses that I've started have recurring revenue. One I choose to work on actively. The other is passive. And the one that's passive, it's awesome. To some degree, I'd love to have, you know, hey, wouldn't we all love to have more of those passive businesses? But the ones that are active, that optionality of knowing that I want to leverage that recurring revenue to grow it further. But at the same time, if there's a life circumstance or I need to go on vacation, just to know that there's some steadiness is really nice as well. It is interesting, though, as you grow and make that decision, because, 
you know, when we first started, our whole premises was we're a boutique brokerage. That's what we do. It's like this hands-on experience and we'll customize everything. And, and so that's probably one, one of the, been one of the hardest things is that we recognize that we want to grow. We recognize that we've got more to offer to more people, but we're having to kind of rebrand ourselves because now when people come in and say, oh, can you do X, Y, Z? Because just swing by my property once a week and change the little sprinkler filter. Do you mind? We suddenly mind where at 10 doors, we'd love to swing by and swing, change out your filter for you. No big deal. No extra charge. So yeah. it is definitely interesting to see kind of as you make those decisions as far as what you're going to do, how you have to kind of flex and grow with that. Yeah, for sure. So you're talking about managing labor. Let's dive right into talking about profit. In your mind, what is the bright line psychologically, mindset-wise, what is the bright line that either steers somebody towards or away from profit? And this is a fair question to ask because a lot of folks in the money are not making money on property management. Average operating profit margin is around 6% in this industry, which doesn't leave a lot of room, a lot of margin for error. We'll get into the minutia of best practices on a technical level, but high level, 50,000 foot view, what do you think differentiates those owners that hit the mark with profit versus those that consistently miss? I think really it's understanding where your income's coming from and managing your expenses. So I think it is really easy for, sometimes I hear about companies that are in the, the smaller smaller growth size and looking to expand and I hear them say like, oh, I'm, I'm going to hire a BD or I'm going to hire a maintenance coordinator. I'm going to hire whoever because I've got 50 doors. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, you're crazy. Like you have to put in the work to be able to make sure that there's the income coming in before you spend the money. Because if you start spending money before the money's coming in, I can only imagine how stressful that gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So managing labor is the thing you're talking about there. Obviously, labor is is a huge expense. I mean, what does that look like in practice? You just mentioned a second ago that we're not going to go check your sprinkler covers once a week. How do you not make that question of will you do XYZ a one-off conversation and dialogue as opposed to just like a standard answer? You know, I think really it comes down to just setting expectations from the get-go. And then also, we probably should be a little bit more structured and formalized with we're going to do this or we're not going to do that. But a lot of times it's kind of case by case. So, and then also depending on the owner. So if I have an owner that's just super awesome and needs a quick favor, okay, great. We'll swing over and do that for you this one time. Just so you know, next time there's going to be a service charge for that. But just building those relationships so that, and then explaining to them why you have to charge that extra dollar figure. Because a lot of times people don't realize what goes into it. So I think just, you know, setting expectations and communicating why it's costing extra money. And then also communicating that, like, ultimately, we want to provide the best service to you as possible. And when you start doing all these little one-offs, it creates so much opportunity for error. And we don't want you to become disappointed in us because we think we're helping you, but we're not helping you because it's something so abnormal or out of the ordinary. We're going to forget about it in six months. And then you're going to be disappointed. So we'd rather have it where, okay, this is more of a service contract. This is something that we're going to do. Here's the fee associated with it. And then let's make sure that we do that, document it, and you get the end result that you're wanting and we can manage that properly for you. How do you guys handle maintenance? 
So we ha- do have a separate in-house maintenance company. Um, I know lots of people have found out how to be very profitable in that. We have not figured out how to be overly profitable. It has enabled us to grow our company, but uh, most of our maintenance is outsourced. It is a little bit unique, though, because we are in such a small town. The individual handymans, it's very difficult to compete with their rate because they just are so far behind the times and they don't understand the value of their time and their expertise that a lot of times I can outsource it and save my owner more money than I can if I was to do it through our handyman service. So in terms of what you guys choose to insource versus outsource, does that fall along the lines of specific types of work orders or types of jobs? Types of work orders, types of jobs, and also the time of year. So our market's a very cyclical market, being it's a college community. So uh, with that, we only allow our leases to expire June, July, August. In the summertime, we call it controlled chaos. The rest of the year, it's a little bit more mellow and low-key. For nine months of the year, we'd like to funnel as much work to us as possible. In the summertime, we just want to get it to the vendor who can get done the fastest for the best rate so that our owners aren't losing vacancy loss. So in terms of the make of the portfolio, what percentage of your owners would you define as intentional investors? Really surprising, actually. Not as many as you would think. So only about 20% of our clients are intentional investors. And how many of those is about 550 properties excluding HOA, correct? Correct. So of that 550, how many owners are represented there? 152. All right. So you sent some stats over earlier, kind of documenting the the growth from both the door count and the owner count over time. I'm just going to read off some of these numbers because there's a little bit of a mismatch between the, the doors and the owners. Obviously, it doesn't perfectly match. It's not one door per owner. But in 2010, at the end of the year, you're managing 15 doors, more than tripled, by 2012, you were at 48, 2014, two years later at 98, 2016, 149, and 2018, 152. That's the number of owners. The number of the door count is obviously dramatically more than that. When you think about these different constituencies, do you have an inherent preference for one or the other? Do you intentionally solicit one or the other? You know, we prefer investors um, mainly just because they're not emotional and it's more bottom line driven. So typically their assets are easier to manage and you can do a more efficient job. We also like the investors because we like to help them find other properties to purchase or like to help them sell assets to buy other things. So we like the auxiliary income that we get off of those. They understand that we're the experts and they're willing to take our advice and willing to listen. It's the accidental landlords that are uptight because we sent a plumber over to change out the flapper and they're all worked up about the $75 plumbing fee. And, you know, it only takes them 10 minutes to do it. I understand that, but I can't go do it for you and the tenant can't do it. So it's a legal responsibility of yours. So those are the owners that you're kind of like, can you just understand that this, that you're running a business? I know you didn't want a business, but that's what you got now. So typically they're all price driven and, you know, they want to work on your price, work on your work on your price. And we just don't, that's not how we do it. So we have a fee structure that we have in place and take it or leave it. But we never flux on that. We have an owner who uh, probably owns about 10 units and he was buying another three. 
And he just started trying to beat us up on price because he added three units. And I kept explaining to him, I appreciate the three more doors, but it's not reducing the workload for us. And then with this particular owner, he has very specific guidelines on different things that he wants. So it's actually more work for us. So when that type thing comes up, you know, we really try and actually like delve into the numbers and send them the numbers so they can say like, hey, I understand I'm more than my competitor, but find out how often your competitor raises rent prices. Because with the market the way it is right now, last year we were raising rent prices almost 6%. That's a big increase, but the market could bear it. Where, you know, most of my competitors were just renewing at the same rate. And so, you know, we're willing to work hard for our money, but we need to make sure that we're communicating that to the owners so that then when they start trying to beat us over the head to cut our fees here or there, letting them know, you think you're paying us, but we're actually earning this and we're making you more than you're, than we're taking. Absolutely. Uncommunicated value is unacknowledged value. In light of what you just described, what is your relationship like with your other competitors? Yeah, we're definitely friendly with the folks. Like, you know, we run into them at the hardware store and see them at the coffee shop at least weekly. Three of our or four of our doors are all within one block of each other. So we're very close. So literally there'll be people who pop into our office and say, oh, I'm here to pay this rent. And oh, your landlord's across the street. Go over there. So definitely friendly and nice. Yeah, we all just run very different businesses. So we're not the mom and pa shop. All right. So I'd like to transition to the rapid fire section of the interview. And when we go through this section, I'm really just looking for kind of quick guttural answers on a series of questions. And the first question is this, Sarah, who do you learn from? Most of my connections are through NARPM. And I just have been so um, blessed by that association. So when I go to the conferences, I typically sit back, I find someone who I think is smarter than me. And then my mission is to get to know them for the week and build that relationship. So then I got a buddy, I can pick up a phone and give them a call and say, Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? How'd you do it? And those are the best people to learn from, I think. What business books have impacted you the most? Traction's a great one, but also the e-myth. I don't know if you've read the e-myth before. Yeah, Michael Gerber. It's like it's like required if you've been in business for more than five years. Like it's so crazy. simple, but so good. Yeah, I, I think those books have dealt pretty well with one another. I'm halfway through traction. I read e-myth like probably a decade ago. I should probably revisit it. Yeah. One other book too, that's really great. And it's not really a business book, but you can apply it to business is a book called Love Does by Bob Goff. Have you heard about it before? I have. Yeah. Isn't that like in the kind of faith genre? It is in the faith genre, but that particular book, each chapter uh, talks about a different business and how that business started. It really goes back to like, why are you doing it? And what service are you providing? And how that if you really love what you're doing and are passionate about it, it doesn't matter what it is. If you can bring value to someone, the value will come back to you and definitely awesome. Highly recommend it. Right on. All right. So we'll link up those in the show notes. If you could do it all over again, if you could go back to day one of meeting that connection with the realtor in Ellensburg that ended up being your first employee, what one piece of advice would you give yourself? I wish I would have known about NARPM then. I didn't know about NARPM. And so um, now for some of my older owners who are already kind of grandfathered in, there's some additional income streams that I feel like I could be getting that I drag my feet a little bit more than I probably should. And so I just think, man, if I would have connected better with industry experts and realized how to structure my contracts a little bit differently and stuff, man, I left a lot of money on the table. 
you know, we have definitely gone back and changed terms and stuff like that. But then there's some uh, income streams that I'm really intrigued by. So like the eviction protection plan, for instance, I think that's a super awesome idea. I am working on implementing it right now. But for an owner that's been with you for eight years and has never had an eviction, it's a lot harder to be like, hey, sign up for this because they already think that we're awesome. And like, why would they waste their money on it? So yeah, so things like that. I'm like, man, like some, I don't know if you can go back and redo, but um, definitely as far as other fee structures, you know, we've built the trust and have definitely gone through and reconfigured and become more competitive. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about our industry, what would it be? I would probably say just increasing the level of professionalism. It just kind of makes me cringe sometimes if I have to tell someone I'm a property manager because there are a lot of property managers that aren't running a business professionally. So I just don't want to be lumped into a category that I think that I'm more excellent in than what is always represented. Yeah. Any any thoughts on what might drive change in that perception because it certainly is is needed but i mean do you think that that's uh potentially going to happen through regulation is that one-off providers just positioning themselves through operational excellence any hope for for change oh i definitely think so i mean i think legislation is going to drive that um increased education the more professionals that we have out there people are going to start watching and noticing and saying oh this is a really viable business and something that is considered more of a profession versus a I do this as a side hobby. And then also, you know, the big boys that are coming in and buying hundreds and hundreds of thousands of houses up, uh, that's seriously going to change our industry. I think it's going to become much more like the multifamily industry. So the big boys that come in and buy a thousand houses, they have a different expectation for how things are to be ran and what they expect um, from from an owner perspective as far as reporting and um, standards and processes. So the little guys who are running the mom and pa shops are going to have a much harder time competing. They're not going to be able to play that game. I think with that, you know, their opportunities will go down. So they're going to have to increase their professionalism to be able to continue their business if that's what they choose to do. The cream rises to the top. That's right. Final question of the interview. You knew this one was coming. Sarah, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Oh, I think they're born, but also bred. But there's got to, there's something in the DNA personality trait that's just different. It's born into you. You can't quelch it. You can try and like create it, but at the end of the day, there's a different DNA thread that you have to have to be able to endure the low lows so you can enjoy the high highs. Do you think some people have it, but it's dormant and never activated through life circumstances? Possibly. But if it's really, truly there, I just don't know how they can sleep at night without trying something. Like if it's there, it's like it's crying to get out. Yeah. goes back to what you were saying earlier about getting in. In alignment. Uh, so I fall on the born side as well. That said, I definitely, particularly as I've gotten older, have kids, et cetera, give more credence to, I guess I have appreciation for the bread side on the level of that which is modeled for you is incredibly impactful. You described it in your family. You grew up with parents that were entrepreneurs. I had a dad that was an entrepreneur. And so for me, it was like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna go do that. How hard can it be? Sounds great. Why, why not? You know? 
<laughs> so the modeling is there. At the same time, the argument in favor of the bread side is the risk tolerance and the willingness to embrace long-term suffering and just to not know how long, when it's going to let up. There's no promises. There's no guarantees. Nobody tells you what to do. You just, you tell yourself, I'm going to figure this out and it's going to be great. And that is absolutely, how can you teach that? I don't know. That's why it's born. I'm glad we can agree on this. Yeah, we're, we're on the same page. Well, it was great to have you on the show. If anybody wants to get in touch or learn a little bit more about the business, what's the best way for them to connect with you? The best way to connect through us is through our website, which is Accolade hyphen rentals.com accolade-rentals.com and don't judge my website because I'm in the process of redoing it but that would be the best place to connect all right love that caveat so guys if you'd like to learn more about this strategy if you're in a rural market and you're wondering about the potential of that market if you're in a larger market but you're thinking about expanding to a nearby rural rural market Sarah's a great person to connect with I mean 10% market share again that's just like bananas so hopefully that turns into 20 and then 30 Thanks for coming on. Let's stay in touch. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.